Hi, this is Hope. This is Kareem. Hi, this is Katie from Washington, D.C., and you're listening to No Meat Athlete Radio. Samantha, the other night we were hanging out. We were at Island Brewing, having some beers and eating some homemade bami sandwiches. Thank you very much mm-hmm. for making those. And uh, we were talking about my first coaching client to run 100 miles, Karen. Right. And she finished. She okay. was in the last few hours when we were hanging out. Right. And I told her that we were thinking about her, and she said that um, she was thinking about us around that exact wow. same time. Wow, 92? Same? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Because she, she was thinking about your story of uh, Burning River when it was really muddy and you were just taking forever to get through it. Right. And how, uh, how at peace you were with it. How... I became at peace with it. How you became It took me a while to get there. Maybe she forgot that. But <laughs> <laughs> well, she was really struggling with a lot of mud. Apparently, the trails were really messed up. And, uh-huh. uh, and she was she was trying to focus on how you handled the situation. Nice. Uh, cool. Well, congrats, Karen. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. And congrats to you for having a coaching client who who ran a 100 miler. Your it's first one, right? Your my first, first. Yeah. You should get that's an that's an award. That's I think. It. You can <laughs> Definitely, add that to your you know trophy case. <laughs> <laughs> add it to the trophy case. Yep, yep. It was all me. It was not at all Karen. Right. Yep. Yeah. You did almost all that work. <laughs> yes. Good. Uh, yes. And for those playing along at home, we we did a little hangout, Doug and I, this weekend with our with our families. Doug's growing family, we could say. Uh, yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is just you and your wife right now, <laughs> but, but with a baby in her belly. Yep. Uh, yes, had a good time. Went had some beers. We were going to, well, there was going to be a Brandy Carlisle show, who is not Brandy the R&B hip-hop girl. <laughs> I don't think that was hip-hop anyway, but... Uh, R&B. I can't... I've heard Brandy Carlisle's name a lot of times, but I, that's who I picture all the time, is Brandy with those the braids and all that. Mm-hmm. What was her big hit? I don't know. I I, I remember my <laughs> sister had a Brandy CD. I don't know. Let's not waste the listeners' time with, okay, with that anyway, keep conversation, though. Yep. Um, anyway, yes, we had a good time. So today, I've I've been looking forward to this episode because I realized we haven't talked about cooking really at all in this podcast. And we've talked about food. We've talked about some of the things we eat day to day and some of our philosophies around nutrition and making healthy eating practical. But we haven't really talked about cooking. And... Anyone who's been around since the really early days of No Meat Athlete, which I don't think too many people have been around eight years, and that's a long time, seven years, I guess. Um, that's what it started as. I was really into cooking, and that was that was kind of what, probably the thing that got me to actually go start a blog was that I was so into cooking and thought it would be fun to start sharing these recipes once I went vegetarian back then. Uh, so the first, like, I don't know, probably probably 50 of the first 75 posts were either recipes or stuff about cooking specifically. So that used to be a really big focus of mine, and it's kind of funny that that by the time this podcast started, it had really stopped being a focus of mine, uh, so much so that we've never even really considered, like, let's do a cooking episode. <laughs> so that's what we're doing today, because I've been doing this uh, Ruby cooking course, which anyone who has listened to the Jason Robel episode uh, about, uh, probably about four months ago, knows the, the origin story of my, my culinary school. You can call it online culinary school, I guess. I don't, I don't, I mean... I think they call it cooking professional plant-based certification course. Uh, I like to think of it as culinary school because I've always always wanted to go to culinary school. Uh, but anyway, Jason Robel on there came on and raved about how good this Ruby course was and that it was even more thorough than than the in-person cooking school he had attended back in the day, which I think was probably 10 plus years ago. Uh, but it's all plant-based, run by this guy named Chad Sarno, who himself is a really great chef, has opened up several restaurants, used to do some of the Whole Foods like menu design for their for their hot bar and stuff like that. Mm. So very very experienced plant based chef has lots of great things that uh, people have said about him on their website, including uh, Woody Harrelson. Oh, I know is a, a favorite Doug actor as a Hunger Games fan. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Woody Harrelson and uh, <laughs> and Bud Cozy, your celebrity. Yep. <laughs> okay, that's good. Uh, so anyway, that, I've been doing that. I'm about maybe fifteen to twenty percent done the course. It's a six month course. But it's kind of self-paced, and the point of this is not to advertise the course, by the way. I'm not like an affiliate or anything, um, at least not yet. It might be because it's going really well. But it's so far, we haven't, I haven't really gotten into like a lot of food stuff yet. So far, it's just been background, but a really much more solid foundation than I've ever had before. Uh, we've like gone through like reset the kitchen unit where you go and shop and get the right type of ingredients that you're just going to need to have on hand, um, which I had a lot of them already because some of it is about 
teaching people to you know become plant-based cooks from having been regular cooks so a lot mm. of it's in that way things that i've that i've handled before but others it's like get new kitchen equipment get some new stuff that i guess as a as a more serious chef if, if that's what you're trying to be that you would need that that maybe you wouldn't have acquired in in just sort of a home cook way yet um Example would be a, a knife sharpening stone, which one of the things in this unit or in the, the knife unit was that it's, you know, it's a part of the craft of cooking is in, in learning to sharpen your own knives. And I'd always figure just just go give them to somebody to sharpen, which is what we right. have usually done. Um, but this is not just like the honing or the, the sharpening steel. This is this is that. So not that long rod that people use to hone sure. their knives, but uh, an actual stone you buy and do the sharpening process where you're actually removing metal uh, so, mm-hmm. you know, just things like that are, are, have been really cool for me to learn because I have never, you know, nowhere else would I have ever acquired that. Uh, were there any, were there any food items that they recommended you have on hand at all times that you didn't have? Not really. I think we pretty much had, had most of it. I mean, it was, it was a lot of dried beans and legumes and there's going to be a unit all about cooking dried stuff, not just buying cans, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, different types of things. I mean, there were seaweeds and things that I didn't have and like still spices won't. and stuff or is it? Not that they didn't recommend specific ones, but okay. but there is this master shopping list that you can that you get and you kind of choose the things you actually need on it each week. So if you look at that master shopping list, there's all kinds of things on there that, mm. that you might need at a certain time. But so far I haven't needed those. Um and, you know, knife skills, I've been I've been just plowing through celery, like buying celery at the store and then just chopping it up because that's that's sort of the, the oh, recommended vegetable. They, okay. It's sort of a soft vegetable and it's cheap and it's you know, unlikely to lead to cuts the way that a carrot might, because carrots, you know, a little tougher, right? Um, needs more pressure, and that's going to need, you know, could could increase the incidence of injuries, uh, which which I have a history of. So I've been a little bit scared about that, but so far none, and just just a lot of chopped celery. We've been eating a lot of celery in our salads. <laughs> what so what what kind of cuts are you making? So you can I haven't yet gotten to all the different fancy cuts. So far, I'm literally learning the just just. Uh, I guess it's it's more of a almost like a muscle memory thing, right? Learning the way to hold the food when you're cutting it, which you've probably seen a chef where they do the thing with their hand, but their knuckles are in contact with the blade and their fingertips are behind there. Yep. And supposedly, and not, not supposedly, this this makes it almost impossible to cut your finger if you're if you're just not being an idiot. You know, if you're doing normal cuts and your knuckles are out in front and they're raised off the surface, then it's really hard to reach your fingertips. But there's more to it than that in the way that your hand moves backwards as you're... So with, with making fine cuts on the celery, for example, you keep those knuckles in contact with the blade the entire time, and the blade is sort of pushing those knuckles back, and eventually they, they run into your thumb and pinky, and you need to slide those back so you can keep moving down the celery. Oh, interesting. So, so you don't so move your whole hand, you just move your It kind of walks like a crab. It like it moves ah. back. Um, so anyway, things like that. This sort of just basic, really foundational technique that I, of course, had never, you know, because I'd, I'd cooked from plenty of recipes, and it was like chop the garlic, chop the onion. But other than looking quickly on a YouTube video, how do you chop and how do you dice an onion? I had never really considered, certainly not not practiced to try to groove how it feels. Right. Um, the actual knife skill. So that. So I'm working on that now. Uh, but it's been really, really fun. It's that's that's kind of where we are. I mean, of course, there's more stuff about restaurants. You know, how do you hand wash? How do you be clean and how do you show up for work on time and stuff like that as a home cook isn't all that interesting to me yet but uh like at this 20 percent mark i'm kind of like just hitting the part where now now that the knife skills are handled or getting handled because i've still got the cuts and things to learn uh we'll get to the food so but it's, it's been really fun and has just totally reawoken my interest in cooking which really as soon as i heard about it that interest started to be kind of rekindled but um are you gonna start a new athlete uh restaurant no i'm not but, <laughs> but I'm going to write a Nomenathic cookbook and, oh. and already have oh, there with, you go. Uh, with a friend. Yeah. So more, more to come about that uh, as it becomes available for pre-order and stuff. But uh, today we are talking about just, just how do you get going with cooking? How do you get started? I guess, I guess my goal with this is to get people back into the frame of mind. Well, the frame of mind that I'm in now, but also in that frame of mind where before I started Nomenathic, I spent two years just being really into cooking and and not in any formal way but just buying a lot of cookbooks making tons of recipes a lot of times would cook three meals a day breakfast lunch and dinner and actually go spend the 30 minutes to an hour to cook them because it was fun not because it was a chore and i felt like it was so annoying to have to do this but because i really wanted to so uh that took a little while to get there because you can like i think there are a lot of people who want to cook and that's always the advice that people will talk about when they talk about healthy eating is just start cooking your own food that's like where you begin because 
as soon as you make that jump, it's like you've you've almost automatically improved the way you've eaten, right? Because like there's lots of salt that is no longer going in your food unless you're putting it in uh, lots of fats and oils and all kinds of other stuff that might be used in a restaurant, depending on what type of restaurant you're you're getting your dinner from most nights, uh, or in frozen food and all that. You know, you don't know what's going in there. So of course that's the first advice that people give. But I think the question is, how do you get into cooking, right? If, if you have no knowledge about it, no experience with it. Like, where do you begin? And and you've gone through this too, right? Because, I mean, you guys cook most nights out of the week. Yeah, absolutely. And, but, you know, looking back, like our, our episode last week in college, neither of us knew how to cook. Yeah, right? Right, we did right, a little right, bit, right. but, I mean, it was it was pitiful. So that's that's our goal here. I don't know quite where it'll go, but uh, we'll see. I, I've been really back into cooking, and I think my some of my healthy eating has kind of taken a dive in the past uh, few weeks like, since I've gotten back into this. Oh, interesting. I've just been... Because that's that's what got me out of it was as I started I went down this this sort of rabbit hole and it's a good thing I was I'm glad that it happened, um, of getting ever healthier and healthier with the food, which meant the cooking for me became ever less and less interesting. It was just more and more about you know raw food food and... not being entertainment right mm-hmm. no oil minimize salt raw foods stuff that's more about let's eat in probably the most natural way possible just to avoid any any modern junk and and giving into modern craving so there's a balance to be struck, right? Like right recently, I've just been cooking lots of me. I've been using oil lots in, in this. Oh, by the way, I didn't mention that. This cooking course, there's a big unit on oil-free cooking, which mm. I think is really cool. And just a lot of focus. A lot of the recipes just happen to be oil-free or give you oil-free options. Um, and, and there's also stuff like gluten-free cooking. There's units on all these different special areas. But I thought it was cool that oil-free was, was highlighted. Yeah, um, definitely. So it's I'm not trying to say that because now I'm doing this, I'm just totally back into eating oil all the time. Right. But it kind of is required for some of the things as part of if you're going to learn to be a cook, then you learn you learn to cook with oil first. So our bami sandwiches weren't oil-free? They were not oil-free, Ugh. no. Um, but they're a good example of what I mean. Like, So it's not like we ate junk food that night, right? They were still on whole wheat buns. It was still tofu and pickled vegetables and good stuff. Yeah. There was a little vegan mayo on there that was that was junky, but... Yeah. Uh, you know, so it's not total junk food, but I've, I guess I've taken, I've, the pendulum has swung back the other direction a little bit where I'm kind of now cooking for more for fun again. And which means the meals aren't always going to be as healthy as when I was being as strict as I could. Uh, but I think there's a good balance. I think, and I think that balance is making it so that your automatic meals, like the, the things you do on autopilot, the breakfast, the lunch for me, cause typically they're, they're around the work day and I'm not going to be going, spending a lot of time in the kitchen for breakfast and lunch. Uh, making sure that those things are as healthy as they can possibly be, but then the meals—not every dinner, but a few dinners a week—making something that's that's really good and not quite as healthy as those other things. But if you're if the things that you kind of do on autopilot, if that's healthy, and then it's the exception when you do the unhealthy thing, I feel like that's kind of the the place to be. So those I'm still keeping all those other things oil free and and doing all that. Yeah. So so if you if you are not a cooker, you know if you eat most of your <laughs> cooker, did you said a, oh, a cook or. No, a cooker, a, cooker. <laughs> a chef, a, a cook person. Cook. I think they call it a cook. A cook. If you're not someone who cooks, it's my, my Holdman, he was four, called everyone cookers at restaurants. <laughs> no, but no, I'm, I'm not talking about a chef or like a cook. I'm talking about if you're not someone who cooks often. <laughs> okay, okay, all right, I get it. If you're not someone who cooks often, yes. Um, and you know, but you want to, you want to start. What was the, what's the very first thing you would recommend people do? That is a good question, Doug. And when you haven't prepared for it, <laughs> <laughs> no, it actually is when I prepared for. Oh, good. Okay. Uh, my so you got to find a way to want to cook, and you have to find a way that it's not going to be a chore and it's really exciting. And the thing that I would recommend you do is go get a cookbook that is really exciting to you. That mm. just seems interesting and and fun to make. It doesn't have to be a vegan cookbook. Like I think I would recommend for most people. If you want to, just from my own experience of, and there are people who feel totally differently, but from my own experience of once I went vegan and once I started getting healthier and healthier with my food, I lost some of the interest in cooking. Because of that, I would recommend getting a book that isn't necessarily vegan, but is about a, a type, an ethnicity of food. Is, can you say ethnicity of food? Is that okay now? Or is that like a bad thing? I think it's fine. It's not like non-PC to say say the word ethnic. Well, there's still an ethnic food aisle in go- most grocery okay. stores. <laughs> Maybe there's not PC. Where they just lump every every type <laughs> of. Okay, so get get something from a specific culture. Um, you could you could get an Italian book that lots of good Italian recipes don't require much in the way of animal products. Like some of them have it, almost all of them have it. 
but, but it's very easy not to yeah. put the cheese in or and they don't even use much butter i mean typically it's gonna be olive oil over butter mm-hmm. um and because there's lots of pasta dishes it's a fairly easy thing to to make but even better example than that would be um you know like can i say asian you can you call things asian you can right? yeah. <laughs> i don't need to say food from asia no you can't okay. <laughs> i don't know i don't know what's pc anymore i don't know anything and you're like a young democrat guy now right don't now you go, don't you go to rallies and stuff yeah okay so i don't want to offend you my co-host um <laughs> i'll tell you if you're <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> uh so there used to be a, a book called world vegetarian by uh, an indian woman you could say indian right you don't have to say native american for <laughs> well uh, i don't know an indian or a native, native american woman an actual indian i think you no well see i don't know what I that feel, means i feel like even i mean indian like over in asia india oh yeah yeah that is an indian woman i feel like even that you got to say native american these days what <laughs> that's terrible that is racist right there. <laughs> that's too far <laughs> So she's an Indian. She's an actress. Her name's Madhur Jaffrey or something. I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing that name. Uh, but it's a great book. It's called World Vegetarian. And as a vegan, most of the stuff in there you can't make. But it's pretty easy to turn most of it into vegan food. And to me, that's what's really inspiring is getting a book like that rather than just going and buying the new vegan cookbook from the new new vegan blogger, you know, like, which is fine. Those are cool books and, and they're fun. But I don't, to me, that's not, wasn't the way to get into cooking. It was more go kind of deep into some culture's food and make it vegan or, or vegetarian as needed. But so what about like, I mean, there, you know, there are so many good cookbooks that are really complicated, right? And if you're just getting into into cooking and maybe you don't have all uh, this, this backlog of spices and you don't have right. this, like, is that, you know, sometimes that can be frustrating or... or... Yeah, that's a good point. So I, I should back up and say that the reason I mentioned, one of the reasons I wanted to point out get a cookbook is because I think most people, when they nowadays when they think about cooking, it's just I'm going to Google the food that I feel like making and find the recipe that comes up and choose one that has five stars or four stars. Right. But I, I kind of think that, like, maybe that's a little bit easier than, than diving into a cookbook. But I also think you're not really going to get anywhere doing that because you're going to find different stuff and different advice and you're not going to start to understand that okay this is the way that this author likes to do garlic right do they like to slice it into slices or do they like to mince it really fine uh and and that's just one example of something that that you'll get different results depending on how you do that right because minced garlic really small is going to burn more easily so you got to be more careful um so i mean it's just i think i don't know i I wouldn't jump around randomly picking recipes from no meat athlete or any other i would Mm -hmm. go for a book and, and learn to get into it. But I think what you said is a really good point. Uh, and, and in fact, the first cookbook that I really did dive into, this is before I was vegetarian, was a Rachel Ray book. It was it was like 365 no repeats or something. So it's, the idea is 365 meals and you could make every one for a day uh, in a year, which of course I didn't do. I just did it used like a normal cookbook. But I think maybe something like that where they're meant to be quick meals and they're meant to be really mainstream Meals, meal animation right. cooking. I think that was a good introduction because it was there weren't advanced techniques in there. Nothing's going to be advanced or hard or scary if you're trying to get it on the table in 30 minutes. Right. So, um, that's a good point. Maybe, maybe, maybe the place to start is something that's much simpler. I, I guess if you could find something that starts that is simple like that and mainstream, but is also about a type of food that to you is inspiring in more than just a, like this is going to be a good healthy food, but like you know something that just kind of makes you really excited to get in there and. and make 50 recipes from it yeah uh so i don't i don't have that's actually a good a good question because i don't have a a specific book to recommend i've always liked uh mario batali's book he has one called molto i think it's called molto italiano that is a little bit mainstream because he's kind of a mainstream chef tv chef guy and there's plenty of stuff in there you can't make just because it's it's meat but uh, I, I don't know. That's been one that that's has been fairly easy to get into and it feels when you put the food on the table like you're putting something that is authentic and and good on the table so uh that's one that i've liked a lot have, have worn you know the pages are falling out of it because i've used it so much hmm. uh yeah so i mean i don't know how about you how did you how did you get into cooking the first time when you had no cooking skills from going from there to being fairly familiar with things um well i honestly i started dating someone who cooked <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and so i kind of had to do that um and, and learned some basic skills from her. But cook, cook, cookbooks are, you know, a great way to start if you can if you can have the discipline to actually do them and, and buy the ingredients and that kind of thing. I My first 
vegetarian cookbook was how to cook everything vegetarian. Mm-hmm. Um, and with that, I, I mean, I really loved it because it, it, it was, it didn't focus on some sort of genre of food or ethnicity of food. It, you know, was very, very broad, but had those basic skills. And, and so you'd say like, all right, I want to cook pancakes. How can I make homemade vegan pancakes? Mm-hmm. Right. And, and it would just have, um, you know, the base, the basics of how to do that. And then you could do whatever you wanted to with it. And I think that was where I really started learning how to have skills because it was such basic information. And the whole point was for then for you to take that and transform it into something a little bit more creative. Right. So I think, I think that's a, a good example, uh, and a good exception to what I said about looking for a, a certain genre or ethnicity of cookbook, maybe to you at that stage, that's kind of what vegetarian was. It was this, it was this totally new thing that was an exciting thing to dive into. Right. Uh, and, and not that it has to be new for that, but someone, if, if you're, if the thing that inspires someone listening to this is to become really good at vegan cooking or, or vegetarian cooking, then, then I think by all means, that's a good place to go. And maybe that book in particular is a, is a good one to begin with because it is starting from, from really basic foundational stuff, uh, which is an important thing because like there's such a big difference between being a chef and being a cook. And I think typically it's, it's understood that that means um, a chef is someone who can create a recipe and, and could go in the kitchen and see what there is and just throw together something. Who knows how good it's going to be, but can do a decent job with putting together their own meal. Yeah. Whereas I think I think a cook is typically someone who follows instructions, whether that's from a chef, like they work in a restaurant and they follow the chef's instruction, instructions, or if it means a home cook who cooks from recipes mm-hmm. and... You know, like that's not if like you could, and this is kind of what I've done up until now has been follow recipes from books, and it has taught me a tremendous amount about how to get faster and better with cooking. And only after probably five years of it have I become able to put together meals. And like, if I want to make a stir fry, I kind of know what goes in there, and I can make things by going to the cupboard. Not to say at all that I'm a, a competent chef yet, someone who can make up stuff, but I I can manage to put together things into a into a good meal at home. Um, but I think one of the risks of saying cook from cookbooks is that you might just keep following instructions and never, never get to that next level. And I'm only just getting there where you start to be able to actually do things on your own. Um, so I think, I think as you're, I think it's really important that as you are going through cookbooks, you are paying attention to this and you're starting to notice principles and when things come up, like when it says, I mean, so like, okay, this is a good example. When I first started cooking, I, I think I had gotten back from Italy. I was really excited to make something for Aaron. Just, I don't know what the special occasion was, but I was going to cook. And the recipe called for three cloves of garlic or something. I didn't know what a clove of garlic was. And I <laughs> thought it meant I might have to buy the that whole, whole head. Yeah, that whole uh-huh. thing, the whole bulb of garlic that has, you know, whatever, 15 cloves on it. I hope like, you did not put 15 <laughs> cloves of garlic I did not because I went to the internet. Thankfully, the internet existed by this time. Uh-huh. Uh, and I found out what that was. So I think, like... If you can sort of just ha- ha- go in with that mindset that says, anytime I come across something that I don't understand, not not potentially as major as that, but if it says to mince something, right. you don't just randomly chop it up and say, well, that that's probably mincing because I feel like I know what mince might mean. Like, go look it up and see what the actual definition of mincing means because most of the time these cookbooks are, are edited by people and maybe even written by people who have a very precise thing in mind when they say the word mince or when they say the word dice. So it's worth looking those things up and kind of recognizing that you're not just here to get this recipe on the table in the fastest way possible, but to learn something each time you cook a recipe. So I think that's a really important thing. And if you can get a book that is starts from the beginning and the goal, like it sounds like this, how to cook everything, which is by Mark Bittman, right? Yeah. You mentioned that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it sounds like part of the goal of that is to actually teach you to become somewhat competent in the kitchen. Yeah. Not just definitely give you a good recipe to make mm-hmm. tonight. I mean, it is a huge, it's probably a thousand pages. It's like right. this huge right. um, resource. Uh, yeah, no, I think I think you're exactly right. All right, good. But uh, I th- maybe I think we were in agreement that you should get them from books, not from recipes. I think, and this isn't just me trying to defend the cookbook industry or something, uh, but I, I've, I kind of went through a phase where I was wondering, like, what, like, wow, it's incredible that people still pay for cookbooks when there's so much on the internet. Right. Um, and you could certainly make a cookbook format type thing on the internet, but... I think I think the idea of getting a cookbook means you're you're investing something more in it, and you're saying I'm going to go deep into this specific thing. And to that author and that author's strategy for cooking. And, yeah, yeah. And I think you can learn more by seeing that consistency, and then going and switching to a new book and and seeing how that differs. I think you can learn way more than just randomly jumping around 
the internet and finding recipes. I guess we should mention, since we've already mentioned the cookbook, your new cookbook, that uh, that you didn't write the recipes, right? I didn't write most of them. Most mm. of them were done with Stephanie Romine, who is a friend of ours uh, from who lives in the Asheville area. And uh, we worked together. I mean, my role was more saying this is this is the type of recipes we need, and trying things and saying this is good, but it you know either this is great, like some of I mean some of the things like the like the sports drinks I'm so excited about because they're they're so much like the Gatorades that I used to drink as kids, as a kid, um, but but made out of natural stuff, and many more than that that are that are really were perfect the first time, and I didn't, didn't need to make an adjustment. But sometimes it'd be like, this seems like it's a little bit involved for what we're going for with this book, or this, you know, we really wanted this to be something that someone with kids could do and could serve and that their kids are going to eat, or we don't want people to need to have a sushi mat to make this recipe right. or have stuff like that. So there was a lot of me overseeing and saying, this is what exactly what we're going for, and her more executing and saying, here's here's what we, here's what we have. So uh, yeah, you'll hear a lot more about that in the future. We'll probably have Stephanie on the podcast at some point. Because uh, she really knows a lot about about cooking and about she's a health coach as well, so she knows uh, just very very well educated and informed person about these topics. Um, and she'll be writing a few blog posts for us too. Yeah. All right, so let's uh, move on, Doug. We've talked about step number one. Let's talk a little bit about equipment because I think this is probably a a stumbling block for people. There is right if you have nothing in your kitchen you're kind of setting yourself up to, to not have a really good experience with cooking. Uh, if you have just a bunch of knives that are, that are all old and dull, it's just, aside from being dangerous, it's not, it's not going to be that pleasant of an experience. If you, you know, if, if you've got a bunch of messed up pots and everything's not good, it's not going to be a lot of positive feedback in this process of cooking unless you get really lucky and something turns out really well. Yep. So um, equipment is good, but I don't think you need to go overboard with it. I, I wouldn't at all recommend that someone needs to go buy a set of, of six or even three knives when they're just jumping into cooking, uh, nor do you need to buy the most expensive thing in the store. Uh, so let's go through some of our things. I don't know what you've got listed here. I listed out a few things that I depend on, but why don't you, uh, why don't you start us off, Doug? What's, well, what's I mean, the recommended item? You're right. You don't need a whole full set of, of good knives, um, but a good knife that you mm-hmm. take, take really nice care of and you you know, you know, make sure you dry it and clean it and, and you know, don't just shove it in the door with it, everything else. Yep. Uh, a good knife makes a, a huge, massive difference yes, in your does. cooking experience. So let me interrupt really quick. You can go to Tuesday morning or even the, the grocery store and buy a chef's knife that is total junk. It's going to break in a, you know, a couple months, and it's going to dull really quickly. But for a little while, it'll be sharp and good. Mm-hmm. So I don't want you to think someone who, who wants to get into cooking that they need to go spend $75 on a decent chef knife right. to start. You can get a really sharp knife and just realize it's, it's going to not last for very long, but it's going to be better than, than the junky thing you have. So if you're just kind of at the beginning and you're like, I just want to try this out, go, go spend $20 on, a, on an okay knife. That will work. There's some, uh, have you seen really those like, brightly colored ones that have like a plastic handle? I think I have and seen And the those. blades yes. red color too. Yes. Um, I, we have a couple of those. They're like just little pairing knives. Um, mm-hmm. But they have full chef knives. They have larger ones. And they're cheap. And they're actually pretty sharp if you take care of them. And if you use the case that they have and if you mm-hmm. dry them off and you... In, in, you okay. So you're not saying expensive knife. You're just saying right, get a good one. A knife that you take care of that's dedicated for, for chopping vegetables or whatever. And um, yeah. Cool. Good. I like it. I uh, totally agree. That was one of mine, Chef's Knife, uh, with that with that caveat that you don't need to go spend all this money just to get started. Uh, but I think eventually that is an investment that is worth making, buying a good one that, that's going to last you for years and years. Um, okay, that's important. I, you know, it's it's said all the time, high-speed blender is just, I think, such a valuable thing. Mm. And it's kind of a new thing. Only in the past decade or so has, has the high-speed blender become... A popular thing that people feel, a you know, thing, yeah. yeah, that people recommend in cookbooks or, or say you need that to make this dish. Uh, if you if you've only had a regular blender, you were missing out, and <laughs> you don't have to spend that much. You can go get one of those ninjas from Target. That's probably not going to last that long, but again, it it can get you started. You can you can see what it's like to have a have a decent blender, and uh, it just it just does so many things. Even if you're not going to do that much cooking in it. Like like grinding your flour, or grinding your beans, or you know all that stuff. If you if you're just using it for smoothies and salad dressings, it still is really really useful. Yeah, right. I mean, you know, for for salad dressing, smoothies, for sauces, you know, for creams. Like, I don't know. We use ours all the time. Yeah, and it just it just makes everything nice. I remember just fighting with my old blender, like when I would try to make smoothies in it, and they'd be too thick. 
mm-hmm. and you'd have this air bubble so that you'd hear the motor running and know the blade was moving but the smoothie wasn't actually churning yeah. yeah and then having big whole frozen strawberries pour into your smoothies and splash out like that was just a mess uh the the jars were never as large as they are on these most of the models that you buy with a high-speed blender so it's just a much much nicer experience and i would highly recommend that if you can if you can do it uh it i mean aside from the cooking topic it's just it's just gonna make things nicer and it'll make easier make it easier for you to eat healthily yep but doesn't replace a food processor because uh i maybe you're you you're a vitamix person is that right vitamix yep. okay so i i have been a blend tech user for a while not because i compared it to vitamix and hated it I just it just kind of what what we went with uh but it doesn't if you have if you're making like a little pesto or something that isn't totally liquid is sort of a paste type thing and you're not making a gigantic quantity the blend tech will tend not to do very well with that like it'll sit in the bottom of the machine and the blade will be over top of it spinning you know a billion times a second but actually not doing anything because it's just not great for small quantities. That's why I have a food processor, and I still use that for dough. Sometimes the high-speed blender is just is just too much intensity. It can kind of just mess up whatever you're trying to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a food processor is really nice. You can get you can get a small one if you're not going to be doing big quantities, and you can even get like uh, immersion blenders and and get a, a a little mini mini food processor that goes on the end of your immersion blender that can hmm. you know it'll it'll a very small one. But uh, it, you know, I'm just. We'll put that out there. Don't think that just because you have a blender, you're not going to ever need a food processor because they they are different and uh, they both have a place. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, another thing for the vegetarian or vegan kitchen, if you are not an anti-soy person, I think a tofu press is absolutely worth the tiny investment. I think maybe they cost fifteen or twenty bucks on Amazon. The one that we've used forever is called Tofu Express, and pretty much every single time we are making tofu unless it's going in a soup or something where it's just going to be tossed in and having that moisture in there isn't going to be a bad thing uh every every other time besides that we are throwing it in the tofu press first it might just be for 10 minutes if we think of it ahead of time we'll leave it in there for an hour and the difference in the tofu from when you pull it out of the package to when you pull it out of the press having been in there for 15 minutes or 20 minutes or even even a little longer uh is is huge it's just it's just a different seems like a different food it cooks entirely differently in the pan if you're putting something that's fairly dry in there it'll sear nicely even without a lot of oil uh whereas if you put in fresh tofu right out of the package you're gonna have a lot of moisture and you will basically be steaming that tofu when that moisture evaporates rather than searing it Mm -hmm. so uh tofu press is is really nice just makes tofu an interesting food again for me a while for a long time tofu was this kind of gross sort of spongy thing that never tasted like anything but once I got in the habit of pressing it first, uh, it, it became a, a good ingredient that you could do things to and that it would absorb flavors and do all kinds of good goodness. Yeah, uh, yeah we love our tofu press. Yeah, and you can, of course, do the same thing with piling plates and pots and pans mm-hmm. on top of your tofu that is wrapped in paper towels or dish towels. Of course, Doug would only would only think of using dish towels. That's right. Yeah. Have paper towels. Uh, we actually don't. We're, we're a paper towel-free household. We are too. Much to my chagrin. I don't like it. Yeah. But We are too. Uh, anyway, you can do that, you, and you can set up this this big precarious situation in your on your counter. But it's just way easier to to use use a tofu press. Yep. And uh, yeah. Okay. I got I got another one. Okay. A good dedicated cooking skillet that you take care of. Nice. My my theme are things that you you want to take care of, and I really do think that that makes a huge difference because totally a lot of Definitely. people get knives they don't take care of. They get a skillet that um, you know is just like a non-stick skillet or something like that then they use metal spoons and scrape it all up and then it just mm-hmm. becomes hard to hard to work with i i, I think a, a very good it doesn't have to be the highest of quality but a thick skillet um probably cast iron skillet would be my recommendation mm-hmm. that you take care of that you dry properly uh and that you use proper utensils inside of so wooden spoons things like that that aren't gonna scrape it up that aren't gonna mess it up um and yeah, I mean, I think that makes a huge difference in both your cooking experience and the type of sear and the type of, you know, flavors you can get on your food. Yes, definitely. So a good thick skillet is going to heat evenly and, and won't give you hot spots where your food's going to get burned in one point because it was just happened to be sitting in the skillet that way. Uh, but I think it's very important. It's kind of a new thing, which is not using nonstick. I guess it's a new old thing. <laughs> <laughs> using cast iron uh-huh. or something that doesn't have this this thing that really, I don't know the details of it, but whatever it is that's in there, Teflon, uh, 
is that is that even what it is that coats nonstick? I don't know. But it, it, something that does not seem like a very good idea to be in contact with your food on one side and extreme heat on the other side. Uh, just now that people are all worried about plastics and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. So we've we've really started to move away from that, and I'm looking at a, at a big investment in pots and pans. Uh, in fact, the one that was recommended in this Ruby cooking school, I didn't actually tell anyone how to find that, by the way, dot com, And the one I'm doing is the professional plant-based certification. You hear that, Doug? Professional. Oh. So I'm, I'm going to be an award-winning cook once I'm done with this thing, <laughs> just to go with your award-winning running coach. Uh, yeah, so it's called Ruby, R-O-U-X-B-E. And uh, the one I'm doing is the plant based, professional plant-based certification. Anyway, uh, Chad, who does these little every few weeks comes on and does a video conference thing where we can ask questions and things. He, he recommended as far as pots and pans, he said all clad is a nice, nice brand. And they're just these, I guess it's stainless steel. Uh, I could be wrong about that. So don't quote me on that listeners, but it's just a very basic pot and pan, but I went and looked at the price and it looked like most of them were something like in the $70 range for a single pot. And, and like, you know, five, 600, if you wanted a good set. And that was kind of in their, their entry level point i think because it gets more expensive from there but yeah. that's not ridiculous for pots and pans you can like uh these salad master things which which are kind of all the rage in the super healthy vegan community uh, are like five thousand dollars for a, for wow. a good set yeah so uh so you know it's expensive and i think eventually it's time to make an investment like that but like you said you only really need one good piece maybe a good pasta pot and something is going to eventually help you out but uh i think if you have a good a good skillet that you're pretty much using almost every night i think that's a, a very good investment yeah, and you can, you know, and you can, my skillet came from an antique store, and it's oh, yeah? an old classic skillet that uh, my dad bought and then re, um, you know, it was in terrible shape, and then he, you know, fixed it up and re-seasoned it and everything. Really? Um, all vegan re-seasoning, I don't know how he did it, but <laughs> apparently that's how it is. Um, and it, you know, and it has served us really well, and it, and it, it was like a classic old skillet, old cast iron skillet that... Um, he got really cheap at a, you know, because it was in terrible shape at a at an antique store. Nice, I like that. It's a nice, it's a nice story, Doug. Thanks. People have salad bowls like that. People pass salad bowls down from family to family. It just gets mm. all that flavor year <laughs> after year. I don't <laughs> and, know about that. <laughs> <laughs> it does. They rub it with garlic, and that garlic just goes in there, and it just gets passed. Like wooden on. salad bowls. Yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. Which is gross to me to think about that you're eating flavors that have accumulated over over the years. But what are you gonna do? Um, all right. I've got more stuff here. Okay. This is a rather simple one, but a big bowl to mix stuff up in it, whether it's a salad bowl, it can serve as that. It could serve as your thing that you make the sauce in one pot and you make the pasta in another pot and you mix them all together at the end. It just, it's just not at all fun when you're trying to stir up giant pot or something that is full to the rim and you can't properly turn things over so actually this past weekend i went as part of this course and, and bought some new kitchen stuff one of them was a giant stainless steel bowl that is i think like the tw- i think it's 15 quarts it might be bigger than that but it is giant I mean, it barely fits in the sink and we don't really know where to put it but it's just really nice to have this thing like, I, I can make mix up like a, a vegan coleslaw type thing and just not worry about it splattering out and overflowing and all it just has taken so much stress out nice so that uh that's one and then another one that is really important along similar lines is a salad spinner and i think Mm. it's kind of we think to me like being sort of minimalist in some of my stuff i try to limit the stuff that we have just around a salad spinner seems like kind of one of these unit taskers that you don't really need but uh it's really nice it just it lets you wash salads really easy lets you start Instead of having to buy those clamshells, which we've talked about before, they seem to go bad so quickly when you buy those from the store and you waste $6. Uh, unless you just buy big heads of romaine lettuce or green leaf lettuce, chop it up quickly, throw it in there, give it a good wash, and then spin it, and you get nice dry salad leaves that aren't going to be wet and be gross and go bad just as quickly. So salad spinner is a good investment. You don't have to. I think they make like electric ones if you're really lazy, but you can just do a hand pump one. And, and they're super cheap. They're cheap. I think mine is made by that OXO brand, OXO, which mm. you see in Bed Bath & Beyond and everywhere mm-hmm. else. You see them in Bed Bath & Beyond and Beyond. Ooh. See that? Yeah. Uh, nice. Yes, thank you. <laughs> so anyway, highly recommended you get a salad spinner. It'll help you eat more salads, which we all we all could do, could benefit from. Definitely. I um, My next one is a good set of storage jars. Mm-hmm. And, and when I say good set, I don't necessarily mean high quality. I just come from Ikea. Um, good. But things to store your dried beans and 
you know, your pasta and, you know, so you can buy in bulk and not have to have these bags that make it either go stale or you, in some place you have to worry about bugs, you know, that kind yep. of thing. Um, storage jars, I think are, are very nice to have. Agreed. Do you use mason jars for that or do you have a different type? They have to... like a clip on them. So they're oh, yeah. not, they're okay. not mason jars, gotcha. but you could, you could absolutely use mason jars. You could all, you know, use old pasta jars, that kind of stuff. Right. Pasta sauce jars. We had, in our past two houses, we've had, we've had rice weevil invasions, which never experienced before, but when we moved here to, to North Carolina, we started having it. So who knows if that is, is part of the reason, but uh, that switched us over to, to glass, and it's, it's much nicer. We just have nice, good glass storage jars. The, the pantry stays nice and organized, and it mm-hmm. doesn't look like a mess with all these bags laying around and things going bad, and it's just much better. Um, I thought at first you were referring to things for the refrigerator, like for saving leftovers. Yeah, which, which is, another, is also good. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and another thing that in, in neither of these situations would you choose plastic as your first choice, especially not plastic with BPA, but uh, I guess BPA-free plastic is a different argument whether or not that's a that's a good choice for long-term, long-term storage of things. But anyway, we've gotten rid mostly of plastic, and uh, we just have these, I don't know, even know what the brand is, but they're, but they're glass storage containers for, for leftovers. And I think leftovers is a really, really important part of getting into cooking because if you've got to cook your lunches and your dinners that's an extra investment or if you're not if you're for some reason you go to work and you eat lunch there that's already taken care of just being able to use leftovers and have to cook half as much for dinner time uh is is really useful i mean i mean you're cooking twice as much but you're but you're cooking half the number of times uh it's just going to be it's going to lessen the the hurdle of getting into it so get get good ways to store your leftovers and I don't have too much more that's really essential. I mean, we, we've we got a few other, I guess, sort of unique items. Uh, I bought an air popper popcorn thing because I just, once we got rid of oil, I needed to have that. I mean, we don't have microwaves either, thanks to you. You got us into that. We got an air popper recently. <laughs> yeah. yeah it's, <laughs> it's, popcorn is just like, it's such a nice little treat, you it, know? It is, yep. But you know, you know what? I'm, I don't love the air popper popcorn. Uh, is it like a little it's chewy? Kind of tough, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And it, you can't get any salt to stick to it because there's no oil on it. Mm. You can, you can of course toss it in heated oil if you want, but, but then do. it's you know then you might as well. I don't know. But if you if you if you don't have a problem with oil and you cook, get a nice Dutch oven or heavy heavy pot. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can cook cook popcorn in there with oil in the pan, and it turns out really nicely. So anyway, air popper optional, cheap investment that. Uh, is good. It really doesn't have any place in a in a how to get better at cooking episode. But <laughs> hey, I guess it might save you from using a, a microwave bag of popcorn. Yeah, which apparently those things are, are terrible as far as like talking about the BPA and whatever else. Oh really? I don't I don't think it's BPA specifically. Maybe it is, but uh, yeah, they're just like the worst thing you can eat. Apparently, does microwave um, popcorn. Or do they even make vegan versions of microwave popcorn? Yes. I mean, oh. I don't know that they ever were marked vegan, but if you if we used to get. Uh, like the store brand organic nature's promise from a giant supermarket uh-huh. um that would be just some kind of i don't know cottonseed oil or some kind of oil in the popcorn kernels oh interesting okay and it's it works fine and it tastes good but i don't, I don't do this microwave bags i would not do those um that's about it we use a griddle we have a little electric griddle that that we break out probably once a week aaron does i should say to make giant batches of pancakes that we then freeze for the kids hmm. for their weekday breakfast they're very healthy pancakes by the way but um that that's a nice thing it, it's one of those things that just like once you start realizing that you're making these giant batches of pancakes it's worth getting this thing that we really don't use any other time but just worth it because then you don't have to keep doing it in such tiny batches in a skillet right all right any more uh food uh what do we have kitchen equipment any any more i've, recommended I've got one things? more okay. and i don't know if you would count this or not but um this is something that we didn't have until about a year ago and okay. that is a compost bucket Okay. Which, um, if you're doing a lot of cooking, especially a lot of vegetable cooking, you're going to have a lot of vegetable waste. Yes. And um, you got to give that back to the earth, you know? You so do. Compost bucket. And then obviously that would require a place to dump your compost. So either at your house or a friend who has one or uh, Good. something like that. So. All right. So I, I am not anti composting, as you might have thought I would be, Doug. <laughs> uh, I actually, we do composting as well. And. It's kind of a pain to me to have to separate my garbage into compost. Just I don't want to deal with that, but but I do. And uh, and one I don't. So do you use like when you say compost bucket? Do you just are you talking a regular bucket that you just use to transport it, or do you have one of those ones that has the little filter thing in there? Yeah, no, mine is just um, 
like a utility food grade bucket. Okay. Um, that we just, and ours is, you know, fairly small. It like sits, so it lives on our counter. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, we don't separate a ton of trash. We mostly, it's basically just food waste that we put in there. Good. Um, yeah. Okay. So one of the things, I guess this is a good time to, to move on. I mean, I don't have too much more to add here. Good knives, good pots and pans. They're certainly great investments to make. Uh, and I'm glad you covered them because I didn't really have them. I had more gadgetry. Um, but it's you know, very important. All, all these fundamental good things. And we could go on and on about good little things that are worth having and that aren't. But I want to go on to a little bit part about how to, you know, how do you actually do cooking? How do you how do you be better at it? How do you not waste a bunch of time? How do you not have a bunch of failed recipes? Which you will have some. But anyway, one of my big time-saving tips for cooking is have a garbage bowl out on the counter next to where you're doing your work, where you're chopping stuff up. It will just, it, it seems like it's not a big deal to walk over to the garbage can if your garbage can isn't right there next to you, but uh, it is. It saves you just a lot of stuff. And it's it's more than a time thing. It's a stress thing. It just, if, if every, between every little step, when you clear your cutting board off, you don't need to go walk over and open the garbage can and put it in. It's just nice to have a garbage bowl right there next to you. Uh, or a compost bucket. Well, that's what I was going to say. That nowadays I actually have two there. I have the compost bowl, and I, we don't really have a bucket. I just have a one of our big mixing bowls. I just use that and walk it out to the to the compost area. Um, so I have two of those, and just have them there next to you, next to your cutting board. It just it just makes it so much nicer and saves you a lot of time. Doesn't seem like a big deal, but I promise you it is. So get a garbage bowl, get a compost bowl. I like it. Do you have a fruit fly issue with, around the compost? Not if you. Um, so we, we don't actually compost ourselves. I take it to our neighbor's place mm-hmm. and I do that. But every... I mean like on, in your, in your house when it's sitting, cause no. like we usually do one and we leave it for the day and then at night we just go. Well, do you have it. a lid on yours? No. Put a lid on it. That's a good idea. Um, and if you put a lid on it, there's no stink. And you know, if you're dumping it every, we dump it every two to three days, mm-hmm. no fruit fly problem and no stink. Okay. With the lid. Okay. Yeah. But I don't need one of those filter things. I thought I had to get one of those filter no, deals. No, no, we you just need a, a bucket. Okay. I like it. Okay, good. So that's one tip. Um, another. So here's a good question. When you when you cook food, when you're, when you're making a meal and you look at the recipe and you've got eight ingredients that need to be prepped, do you scan down the recipe and say, how can I start the process now and then prep this next ingredient while this one is cooking in the pan? Or do you do the thing where you cook as they call it, mise en place. And this, the Ruby thing, and I think any cooking school is, is huge on mise en place, where you do all the prep work at the beginning, anything mm-hmm. you could possibly have to do, have it all laid out nicely and, and even organized somewhat and put in nice rows so that it's sort of this nice sort of anal idea that makes people happy, I guess, if, you, if you're into that sort of thing. <laughs> um, but, they're, but they just harp on it. And I, I keep wondering, like, does that really save time? But as I've as I've started to just be mindful of it and be mindful of how much additional stress there is in the cooking when when I've got onions in the pan and now I'm chopping up mushrooms or something else and I can't just be there by the onions and relax. Um, So while it might be a little bit faster in some situations to try to do the prep work in stages, like as things are cooking, because then you you are making double use of that time. You're essentially multitasking. Um, It's kind of the same as every other multitasking. We're like, yes, it seems like it's a net win, but for the most part, it's not because now the whole, maybe you can spend 20 minutes or 25 minutes instead of 40 minutes cooking, but the, that 20 minutes to me turns into like a really stressful 20 minutes instead of a therapeutic 35 or 40 minutes. So if you're going for time, then then sure, prep stuff as you need to uh, throughout the recipe. Though even then, it's not such a great idea because one of the things I've noticed has happened over and over is if you're making multiple dishes, and it doesn't have to be multiple fancy things, it might be like a kale saute and some sort of pasta dish that I'll end up, if I try to do this thing where I'm, I'm prepping as I go, I'll end up chopping garlic twice instead of just, if I did mise en place and like looked at the recipes said, here's all the stuff I need for everything. Then when I get the garlic out, just knock it out one time. And that, that would end up add up to substantial time savings if you've got overlap there. Interesting. So anyway, as I was saying, if you're really going for time, there's probably a lot of situations where prepping as you go will work. But I think if you want to get a lot out of cooking and really be into it, and, and you're not just kind of mailing it in and trying to get that food on the table, then do the mise en place thing. Chop everything from the beginning. And especially if you're a beginner and you don't want to be stressing about stuff. Because that I think only as you get better are you able to start trying to do the multitasking thing. 
but uh, I don't I don't think it's worth it. I think it's just get your prep done and then relax and cook. I definitely don't do that. You don't do what? I mean, oh, the, the mise en place. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, and it, it can be stressful. And and it's also probably not as good of cooking, right? Because I'm not paying that much attention to, or giving full attention to, you know, how the onions are or right that kind of thing. I, I Yeah, I think you're right. It's probably slightly not as good, but probably you're not going to notice, right? <laughs> Which is why I've done that for so long. But now, now that I realize that it's not all about that, it's also about what kind of goes on in your head as you're doing it and just how, what, what that time spent cooking does to you and how you feel afterwards. Uh, I think it's I think it's really important to to be organized the whole time. And it's also um, you know if you have a partner or or a roommate or somebody that you can cook with, mm-hmm. it's a great activity to do together. And you know so like Katie and I will split up. Uh, you know I'll do the sauces or something like that, and she'll be you know doing the saute, and mm-hmm. you know then it's less stressful because you're kind of although probably lots of times we're both chopping garlic and we're both you know doing things like that. Right. What uh, what will the baby do when you're both chopping garlic? Uh, just watch herself yeah i'm pretty sure babies you just like set them there and they just take care of themselves right yeah that's all they do you don't need to do any parenting so well, you're in now, now, now i'm like oh man <laughs> did, I, did i just reveal the gender is that have you done a gender reveal episode yet i don't think so no but it, it's not a secret so okay it's good. a girl okay <laughs> good all right uh all right so moving on okay i haven't really given a good tip yet these these are like I don't know. They're, you could argue about whether they're right for you, but this one is a good tip. Don't measure your stuff out all the time. If, if you need to, like, you can waste so much time if every single night you cook, you go and measure what a teaspoon of cumin looks like or coriander. Or sorry, I shouldn't say what it looks like. Measure it out and use it in your recipe. You can save so much time by just one single time looking at what a teaspoon of a spice looks like in your palm of your hand and then just doing that from then on because nobody when they wrote their recipe said you actually need exactly 1.00 teaspoons of this thing to make this a good a good recipe it's just that those are things they're useful markers for us to round to right like no like certainly you might be able to improve certain recipes by making them have one and a quarter teaspoons of something but almost nobody ever calls for that so it's okay if you're off by a little bit and and besides it's, it's personal taste anyway if the chef said this is the best amount uh, I mean, you know, who knows if you're going to like that better or worse than if there was an extra quarter teaspoon here, if you're even off by that much in your estimates. So if you can learn what a tablespoon looks like in your hand, roughly, if you can learn what a teaspoon looks like in your hand, uh, if you grind pepper, then just one time measure how many cranks of the grinder it takes for you to get a half teaspoon or a quarter teaspoon or whatever it's commonly called for. And, you know, five cranks equals a quarter teaspoon or, or whatever it's going to be. And you can save a lot by by these frequent measurements that happen over and over, if you just one time learn what they look like, uh, you can save a tremendous amount of time because measuring out spices is, is a pain in the butt. That's a great tip. Thank you, Doug. You're going to start using it? Uh, well, I don't really measure anyway, but um, <laughs> okay, good. But it is a great tip except when you're baking. Yes, I, that's a good point. I don't really do any baking, and I think it's a cool thing. I'd like to do more of it, but that's the thing where they say be as precise as you possibly can. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, and they say, I guess liquid measures and dry measures are not the same. So if you get a liquid measuring cup and you get a, you know, measuring cup that's for dry ingredients, like one of those metal, you know, cups you hold in your hand, as opposed to a measuring cup, apparently the one cup is different. Do you know that? What? Yeah. Dry measurements are different from, from liquid measurements. Wait, so the ones that with the handle that you hold in your hand are not for liquid? So, okay. We, I, I guess, <laughs> no, that's, I'm, I'm struggling for a way to describe it. So you can buy a set of measuring cups, right? Of dry measuring cups that kind of nest inside each other. Yeah. You know what I mean? And yeah. I, I was saying that was what you hold in your hand. These right. kind of metal that, cups. That, that's what I'm describing as well. So those aren't for liquids? Like if you're no, doing those are dry a half measures. a cup of, of, of milk or something like that? With right. It. Right. What? A, measuring, a liquid measuring cup is shaped, like a, shaped like a drinking glass. I don't believe this at all. I'm this telling you, cool. I learned it from Alton Brown a long time ago. Uh, there's some slight difference. And it's small. It's not a big difference. But apparently when it comes to baking and it comes to getting things exactly right, that's important. How can a cup not be a cup? It's, it's just a pound of feathers, a pound of lead. But it's still a pound. This <laughs> <laughs> makes no sense. I'm like blowing my mind right now. So, so for liquids, you're supposed to have one of those like, jar things? that I, I think it's... Okay, here's, here's what I know of it. So they say a pint's a pound the world around. Have you heard that little... Yeah. Little? Uh-huh. Okay. So meaning 16 ounces is a pint and that weighs a pound. 
So of and that's we're talking about liquid. A pint is a pound of water around of liquid. So when you have eight ounces of liquid, that's going to equal one cup in a liquid measure. Right. But with dry ingredients, you don't get such a, a nice conversion, right? Because dry ingredients weigh different amounts in a cup. So for that reason, it can be measured by a different scale. It's just not. It's no longer a. We call it a cup still, but it's just a different unit. Wow. Okay. But but for most like <laughs> like for ninety nine percent of cooking it doesn't matter because they're not that far off. Okay. Okay. I'm repeating right. I'm All repeating right. literally what I've learned from one person who who is a TV chef out in Brown yeah. and and kind of a scientific guy so yeah, I don't he's a scientific guy. I can't hundred percent vouch to say this is the truth and and there's you know I haven't personally done it myself I haven't tested it I guess I should do that before well, I try to defend it on, on a podcast. I believe yeah I mean everything we say here is is truth right so it always is yes always. so google it so who i'm not i'm not going to stand by that but that is what i believe to be true um yeah so i don't know how we got it there oh yeah from baking because baking baking the measurements matter um but that's for most cooking it really doesn't right you can you can eyeball things and i think the more you do recipes this is one of the the sort of unseen benefits just as you get used to cooking you you start to make little adjustments like something calls for a clove of garlic and you chop that clove of garlic up or you realize that it just doesn't look like enough and it's a, you ended up having a small clove of garlic, a beginning chef is not going to make an adjustment. And I guess I guess the more extreme case would be if, if it's too much garlic and it ruins the meal. But someone who, who is a little bit more experienced isn't going to put the giant garlic clove in there because they just think that's too much garlic for this meal. Uh, so I think you get better at things like that. And similarly, you get better at, at eyeballing measurements. Or, or even eyeballing not to exactly hit the number the chef called for, but you get better at eyeballing this This seems like an appropriate amount for this meal. All right, uh, last real tip I have here. And so I, I considered, in blog posts I've written before at Nomad Athlete, like when I've talked about cooking tips, it's been 50 different tips about, you know, here's how you, here's how you peel ginger, which is, a, you know, this is a good Doug's Did You Know. Most of the flavor of ginger resides on the surface or near the surface of the ginger rather than deep inside. So when you peel it, you don't want to use a knife and cut away a lot of that, that surface area or else you're losing a lot of the flavor and the nutrition. So instead you use a spoon Yep. and you get rid of it. So there's a ton of different tips like that, that you kind of just encounter as you read cookbooks and you read the sidebar and it tells you how to deal with this ingredient or you look it up. Um, but that wasn't the point of this episode because we have, you, we could give a bunch of those, but I don't think that really gets anybody going with cooking. Uh, but this is one that's, that's like maybe a little more specific than the others, but um, still general enough that I think it, it fits in. And that is that when you're, when you're chopping stuff, at the very least, try to make uniform size pieces. Mm. So the main reason to do this, of course, is that things will cook evenly and at the same pace. Uh, the, I think the, the, your intuition tells you, or maybe it's just laziness, I don't know. But when you start cooking, when I started cooking and I was supposed to chop an onion, basically to me that meant run this, uh, this knife back and forth across this onion and the pieces of this onion as many times as needed until it looks like it's chopped. Right. No no order to it whatsoever. It was just keep chopping this until most of the pieces are the sizes they seem like they should be. But that's that's totally random, and you're missing pieces, and you have giant pieces and small pieces, and it's just not going to give you good results. I mean, certain pieces are going to cook and be done and burning potentially faster while other ones are still undercooked. Uh, and an onion is, is not an extreme example at all. When you talk about something like potatoes, where you could have a piece that's a little bit undercooked and, and almost inedible because it's undercooked, Versus a piece that's too soft that it's almost falling apart. Yep. Uh, it, it does become more of a deal. So that's that's one thing. But also, as you start to make uniform cuts, it seems like it's going to be a, a time waster to do it. It turns out it's way more efficient because now you're not making any more cuts than you need to. So the example I like to give for this is celery. If, you were, if I was told to just chop celery, back when I started cooking, what I would do would be run the knife down the length, or I, I would chop down the length of the celery. So I'd have all these little rainbows of celery. And then I would go back over those and chop them all again. But of course, they've moved all around, so it's now just random cuts. If instead you make one or two long cuts down the celery, and then you go down all at the same time, so it's not taking extra time, now you're you're not making many more cuts. You're making fewer cuts than you would have in that random method. And you're getting pieces of celery that are all roughly the same size and shape as each other. So same thing works for carrots and, and almost all vegetables. If you yeah, cut... The problem is you still have celery. What do you mean? You don't like celery? No, it's boring as this. Oh, I love celery. Celery's a great vegetable. Unless there's peanut butter and and uh, raisins on it, then I'm not interested. Right, well, then you will be glad to hear, Doug, that this that this generalizes to any vegetable, not just really long, thin ones uh, like carrots, but of course, the same thing works there. 
But anything, even like a clove of garlic, cut it down the lengthwise first. Mm. And then, I keep talking about garlic examples. I, I love garlic, but for some reason, it, I guess it's uh, just good for a lot of examples. Yeah. But cut the length first and then go down and make these crosswise cuts after that. And you can keep things much more orderly. As far as onions go, look that up on the internet, how to dice an onion. There's a couple different ways. They're, they'll do different things. They'll make different size pieces depending on what you're going for. But none of them is just randomly chop over it until you see pieces. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're orderly and they save you time. You're probably less likely to get hurt. You get a nice result at the end. All your stuff looks nice. Your mise en place looks nice because you have all these nice little cubes in there. And it's just a better experience. Yes, that's that's a professional tip right there. Is it a pro tip? I would think so. Well, it's one I thought of before I was a pro. Uh, what do you think about garlic mincers, since we're talking about garlic so much? I We actually almost got rid of ours this weekend, and then I needed it for a recipe, because it was a recipe that called for grated garlic, and I started grating it with a little grater thing, which is kind of a unitasker, but a very useful one. You can get citrus zest and all kinds of things on one of these graters. But I was trying to grate it, and then I was almost grating my fingertips off, and I was like, just give me that garlic mincer so I can get really small pieces. I think it's useful for that. I think I think there are times when you want the garlic to more or less infuse the sauce, you know, almost dissolve into it yeah, uh, and not have chunks. And it's going to be way more garlicky if you if you do that than if you have bigger chunks that not as much of the flavor gets out. So I think it's a useful thing to have. Uh, but I don't, think it's, I don't think it's the way to make your garlic. And I don't really, I mean, for me, a garlic mincer doesn't mince garlic. It makes, it makes tiny, almost pureed garlic right, right? mincing yeah. is, is a different thing where you get little tiny cubes of garlic right so um, i actually i think it's useful it's a pain in the butt to clean i'll tell you that much it is a pain in the butt to clean but yep. i absolutely hate chopping garlic because i hate i hate the, the smell stickiness of and mm-hmm. i just hate that and so i use the mincer almost all the time well even you, though i know it's okay not i got another pro tip for you doug you can rub your hands on a stainless steel sink like the basin of the sink and it will remove garlic and onion aromas. Really? Mm-hmm. Pro we, don't, tip. we don't have a stainless steel oh, sink. Oh, man. We'll get one. Get a stainless steel bowl, and you could use that. Okay. All right. That's a good pro tip. Some dunks did you know. <laughs> do do <doo. laughs> All right. Um, so that's that's kind of it. I've got a treasure trove of these dumb little tips like that, just accumulated over the years of watching Rachel Ray on TV and learning them. <laughs> well, let's let's save those for, <laughs> that for could a blog be, post. Could, yeah, and I don't want to do that now. Um... Well, I hope we offered some value here. I don't, you know, I think so much of the value in cooking is you start following recipes and and just be into it a little bit more than going through the motions and just getting that food on the table. Uh, approach it from like, I'm here to try to learn. And I realized and it's, it's kind of like running, right? Where, where when you start running, you don't know that much different five years down like you're still running and and you might have a few form keys that you're doing differently but basically you're still running you've you've conditioned yourself but as we always mention more than that is that you've kind of conditioned your mind just to learn how to run you're you're just better at running even apart from fitness gains you're you're just more efficient as a runner because your body is used to doing that brain body connection you're better at running Uh, i think kind of the same thing happens with cooking you can you can cook a recipe on day one and then if you keep cooking every day of your life just following recipes not even learning anything uh, if you revisit that recipe five years down the road, it's just a totally different experience making it because you you know how to handle ingredients, you know how they behave. You've made a ton of mistakes where you've you've ruined your meal or ruined at least the ingredient in that meal, and you learn never to burn your garlic again. Right. <laughs> um, but you, you just learn things that you need to avoid. Burning like toasting nuts on on the stove. You you burn nuts. It's so easy to start toasting them and then walk away and you come back and and you know they're like avocados where they're good for just a second and then they're then they're gone. <laughs> Um, so you learn from those mistakes and you just, you, you get better at, at not screwing up basically. And you just, you just get better. So you got to cook and you got to approach it with a little bit of a, of a beginner's mind. And a, I'm here to learn mind rather than I'm just going to get this done and then repeat night after night. Um, but that's all, that's all I got. I don't think I have much more of them. There's tons of time saving tips. You can look up how to save time cooking and find lots of hacks and they're useful, but I think. Sort of like the mise en place thing. I'm, I'm sure one of the best hacks you can do is is to do your prep while other things cook. And I've probably given that tip before, but I think it, I think it sort of gets away from what, part of what the point is, which is to to enjoy the process and and use that cooking as a relaxing therapeutic time. I've, I've got a tip that I just thought of. Hey, here we though, go. Even though we've already moved away. Can from we this call thing. it a Doug's? Did you know? Uh, Doug, uh, maybe. It's okay. Not really. Did Doug's? You know. Do you do? Do you do? And uh, yeah, there you go. Do Doug's you do? Do you do? Okay. Um, 
what do you feel what do you think about this approach that, <laughs> that we've starting taken? off as a great tip though, <laughs> yeah. where you're asking me what i think no no <laughs> one thing one thing uh katie has gotten into this year or the past couple of years is um learning how to make a variety of good sauces that then you can add to a bunch of different stir fries or uh, mexican dishes or you know different different dishes that um you just take whatever you have you know, cook that and then add this sauce to it and it turns into a much something much better. Mm-hmm. So she has spent a lot of time learning different sauces. I like that. I think it's cool. I've never personally done that. Okay. Uh, but if you told me to go make a stir fry sauce or go make a Mexican sauce, I could I could tell you what ingredients are going to be in that meal. Maybe not to make a sauce, but I could I could tell you what ingredients are going in that Mexican mm-hmm. dish. Um, so I think it's cool. I think, I think that's a, a valid hack, you know, like that's pro- no, no one who wants to get serious about cooking is probably going to do that. Cause I don't think you'd want to be kind of confined by like, I'm making Mexican, therefore I'm making my Mexican yeah, software. Of course, but I yeah. think as far as like versatility and, and time saving, but not going insane because you're eating the same boring thing over and over. Right. It's perfect. It's, it's a nice little system, you know, where you, you have these different components and you throw them together in different combinations. It's like one of those formulas that we have on the site. Yeah. Right? It's all right. formula. Right. And th- I mean, and, that, and that's what it is. And that's not to say that we don't uh, use recipes for new sauces and that kind of thing. But, you know, she has a really good curry sauce, a really good peanut, um, you know, peanut mm-hmm. sauce. You know, these, these types of things that um, when we don't know what to do, we want to just put something up quickly. I think it's great for that. I, totally. I think it depends on the person. Like, what, what are you trying to do with your cooking? Are you just doing it to get healthier and and you know make it fun and have have variety then perfect perfect way to save time and not have to think about it too much if you're doing it because you really want to dive into mexican cooking and learn all about it then then that's not the right approach you know so it depends on so you're you so you're saying that she's not going to become a pro chef I, like i'm not you at all i'm not at all saying that I'm not, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> not judging uh i think wasn't the chipotle method post a little bit like that didn't he have yeah. different sauces mm-hmm. you could use and i think yep. it's great it's, it's one of those it's a system of cooking and i think systems are are cool but you never you never get a good artist who comes from a system mindset, do you, Doug? Uh, I guess not. That's why I'm a that's why I'm a food artist. <laughs> we'll see about that. Sam- I haven't I'm I haven't a sandwich seen... artist as you, you are. You, find me. That, that was a really delicious I could sandwich. I could work at Subway. You could. A sandwich artist? <laughs> yep. That was a very good sandwich. Thank you. I'm glad. Mm-hmm. So what were you saying? You haven't seen Oh I was, I was gonna say I haven't seen seen and your you, and yet you have. Yep, yeah. Take it back. Take it back. Okay. I right. hope people know this is all a joke. I'm not really a serious cook. I mean, I'm learning and it's fun, but um, I have I have nothing to contribute artistically to the culinary world as of yet. But one day I will. Maybe. My stomach has been growling for the last 45 minutes, so I think we should wrap yeah. this up. I know. Enough That's food talk. Hungry. All right, good. Well, this has been fun. This has been a new type of episode again. We've done a lot of new type of episodes recently, Doug. One might almost think we're running out of content and ideas and we're just trying a bunch of new stuff. <laughs> um, no. But no, this is good. All right. Well, we hope you've enjoyed it, and uh, we will we'll be back next week. I think with Running Camp Part Five, yeah. we'll wrap it up, final week, and it'll be one day after summer. And we realized it'll be a goodbye summer camp. <laughs> All right. All right. Thanks for listening. Bye.